Hello, and welcome to Someday We'll All Be Dead, a podcast where we talk about all the things with a social work perspective. I'm your host, Hallie Harris, and I am a hospice social worker. And on this episode, I'm interviewing Dr. Kirk Honda, a therapist, a professor at Antioch University in Seattle, and also the host of Psychology in Seattle podcast, which is the inspiration for this podcast. And I'm going to pick his brain and get his expertise today on microaggressions. Um, We're also going to talk about PC culture, and we're going to get a little bit into uh, hypocrisy and how we're all hypocrites, and ultimately the theme of all three of those is to give each other a little bit more grace, a little bit more empathy, and maybe try not to hurt people's feelings as a motto in life. We do get into a little bit of a political discussion, but it really is about how we relate to each other and how we can make that better. Just a side note, there are random little moments throughout the interview that almost sound like the sound from Transformers movie, uh, where the audio kind of cuts out. I'm sorry about that. I'm aware of it and I'm not able to fix it, but I think um, you get the gist of the majority of the interview should sound pretty good. So let's jump right in. Dr. Honda, thanks for joining me uh, in this endeavor. Sure. Today, I'd really uh, just love to pick your brain and get your opinions about a couple different topics that I feel like kind of all go together, um, which is microaggressions, PC culture, and cultural appropriation, which seem like recently have kind of been termed like liberal terms or bad words. And... um, also, I want to know about your libertarian streak and how you feel about those specific words. Sure. So i uh, just going to want to start off with a very clinical definition of microaggression that I looked up, uh, which is a term used for brief and commonplace daily verbal, behavioral, or environmental indignities, whether intentional or unintentional, which I think is the most important part is to realize it doesn't have to be intentional, that communicate hostile, derogatory, or negative, prejudicial slights and insult, insults towards any group. And that definition uh, I found was from 2007. You probably have a better or easier to understand definition. I think that's a great definition. I think it covers all the bases. Like you said, covers the intentional versus unintentional. Mm-hmm. I know I you've done um, episodes about microaggressions, too. Yeah. And some of the examples that I like to just remind people of is when, you know, you're not really thinking about what it is or you don't understand what it is. It's maybe easier to understand with an example, like, for example, clutching a handbag uh, when brown people are around. Yeah, absolutely. Um, Complimenting someone's English if they're not white. Right. (laughs) Um, A female doctor being mistaken for a nurse. Um, and words, and I'm going to do a whole other episode about this, but phrases like, don't try to Jew me down. I think we forget that common phrases we use every day have, you know, a lot of them have terrible histories. Yeah, there it gets more complicated because obviously that one is hurtful in all likelihood to, to a Jewish person. But there are phrases that people don't necessarily, even the people who are aggressed upon don't necessarily even know that it's aggressive to them or hostile to them 
Well, I just looked up peanut gallery. I didn't even know that was a thing. Oh, what is that? So when I was looking it up, it basically is uh, back to kind of vaudeville days where the poor people would sit in the row where the peanuts were, and it was usually people of color. And so when they said peanut gallery, they were inferring that those people were poor people and generally people of color. Interesting. Yeah, I'd never so heard that. So. Well, so that's a good example of this uh, thing that I want to get at, which is that just because a phrase comes from something that was originally marginalizing or just flat out bigoted, it doesn't necessarily mean that today it should be considered a microaggression. Um, so we would have to talk to enough people and ask them, are they hurt by the phrase peanut gallery? Mm. Because just because something has history, like I remember once uh, learning, this was years ago, that rule of thumb was a reference to, this is actually from what I understand false, I haven't looked it up recently, but somewhat it became kind of widely or somewhat widely understood that rule of thumb was a reference to, you know, I don't know, a long time ago. Being able to beat your wife with a stick. Right. That was no bigger than, no wider than your thumb. Mm -hmm. Then I heard later than that, that that actually isn't even true. (laughs) Someone just made that up. Yeah, I I heard that too. I don't know all the details of it, but yeah, I heard that too. Right. So in, in this example, we, just because it has a horrible history, which may or may not even be true, are women actually hurt and does it hurt their feelings or does it scare them or does it bother them when we use the phrase rule of thumb? Hmm. The vast majority of women would say, no, like I don't associate rule of thumb with anything bad. Right. So just because something has a weird history doesn't necessarily mean uh, it's a microaggression. That's a great so point. That. I love that. <clears throat> Yeah, um, just a few other ones that I wrote down were um, yelling at a blind person because you believe they're hard of hearing. (laughs) Yeah. Um, Saying, what are you? Oh, God. And, yeah, and, you know, I I didn't really say this at the beginning, but one of the big reasons, in case nobody knows psychology in Seattle, which they should, um, is that you are half Japanese and I am very white. And so I definitely wanted not only your expertise as a therapist, as a professor, but also as a person of color. And so I can get a better understanding of it, not just from my account, because I'm not the one, except for as a female, I could be microaggressed upon. Um, But yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. So uh, I know there's there's a personal account. I was out with a friend of mine who is Korean and, you know. It was a bar. People were drunk and dumb. and But someone came up to him and said, I like karate. Just randomly. Like, no one we knew. Not even in conversation. And this was many years ago. So I really, you know, I hadn't gone to school. I didn't understand really what was happening. And his response was amazing. He just turned around and said, well, I like pastries. And, of course, we all cracked up because that was the best response. But, you know, thinking about it now and understanding what microaggressions are, I can't even imagine having to hear shit like that every day. Yeah, it's pretty awful. Being in Seattle, there's a lot more Asians and even half Asians, so I get it. 
much less in, especially the closer I get to the more cosmopolitan areas and neighborhoods of Seattle. But as soon as I step outside of the city and particularly the further east I go in, in the United States, even the East Coast, I get, yeah, I, more and more of these comments. Uh, what are you? Or, um, and it's actually interesting because uh, I was in Cuba recently and there a lot of people, a lot of the locals, when I would talk to them, they don't have, they don't have a lot of contact with outside cultures or people, you know, they're pretty isolated. And a lot of them would uh, refer to me as, as uh, Chinese and, and cause they don't necessarily know about Japanese people for some reason. <laughs> they know about because China is a communist country, so they have a kinship with them. Yeah, but uh, Japan's and, an island too. Right. Yeah. <laughs> it's probably so. Yeah. But, you know, they, so they just sort of lump everyone into China. They just call everyone Chinese. Everyone, so their word for Asian mm. or East Asian is China. But anyway, they, they would, um, they would uh, do that thing with their eyes where they'd pull their eyes, you know, to the side. Oh, no. Well, so I just want to say, as an Asian person in Cuba, it didn't hurt my feelings because I knew from the context that they were so ignorant of Asians <laughs> that they just didn't know better. You know what I mean? They, they didn't know that that would bother me. Plus, they so rarely come across East Asian, East Asian people that they're immediately, they immediately focus on that detail. You know, it's, it's like when I meet someone that's like seven feet tall, I immediately think, all I can think about is like, Oh my God, this guy is so tall. That's all <laughs> you can think about. Like he's seven feet tall. Yeah. He's so tall. Now to him, he's used to the fact that he's tall, you know, mm-hmm. but if he walked into an NBA practice or something like no one's going to think oh my god that guy is so tall and so I, I sort of get it where I go to a place where I'm sort of um, quite unique now if I go to the east coast of the United States even though Asians are more rare out there I, I don't let them off the hook because they have a TV and they have internet access you know? right and, and there are Asians on the east coast you know what I mean so uh so I just have to say from my personal perspective that it's not the behavior, it's, it's the effect of the behavior is, is the important thing. Well, I, and I just was thinking when you were talking about tall people, maybe it'd be a good time to kind of explain the difference between when we're saying microaggression is generally thought of as um, something against a minority, which I guess you could argue a seven foot tall person isn't a minority. Uh, but how that might be different from what we generally think of as someone getting a microaggression against them versus someone that has, you know, someone that's tall. Or is there a difference? Well, yeah. I mean, if you're a tall, white, rich guy in the United States, then the, uh, you know, the aggression isn't going to be as marginalizing mm-hmm. as if you are a, you know, lesbian woman of color in a wheelchair is being microaggressed upon it's you know there's a power differential there for sure that should be considered at the same time if you're seven feet tall or have some other notable you know difference in terms of your physical appearance i'm sure if you talk to them they'd be like yeah i wish people would just stop 
focusing on this <laughs> one detail. You know, I'm, I'm a whole human being. It, it gets annoying. Right. Um, I mean, it can, even, it can even come down to, I don't know if we would call this a microaggression per se, but, uh, but it's the same principle, which is like if you have an interesting name, you know, like um, I was listening to a podcast recently where this guy named Luke uh, ran into another guy named Luke mm. and, they inst- and they instantly bonded on all the dumb jokes that people will say, you know, Luke, I am your father, <laughs> you know, that kind of thing. And yes. it's like by the thousandth time you hear that, you're, you're thinking, okay, that's enough of that, you know. Right. Well, I know you've part. mentioned that too about your last name. And my first name, you know, Captain Kirk. Oh, yeah. And <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah. Honda in particular, though, because uh, depending on the person. So, so, so let me give you an example. So in the United States, or in Seattle, if I see, if I'm going through the checkout at the grocery store and there's an Asian checkout person and they notice my name and they comment on it, that doesn't hurt my feelings as much as if I'm in like, you know, Eastern Washington and a white person comments on my name Mm -hmm. that to white people that might seem like that's unfair. You know, that's like, why would I let the Asian off the hook? And, and, (laughs) and, you know, they have a valid concern about that, but I've just been, you know, to an Asian that the key about that for your listeners, I suppose, is that Asian Americans and other people who don't fit the the model of what is considered to be like mainstream American, which is an absurd concept to begin with, but <laughs> um, they uh, are frequently, particularly in uh, particular communities, they're frequently given messages that they don't really belong, that they aren't really American, that they aren't really of this land, mm-hmm. and therefore are outsiders. You know, there's the insiders and the outsiders and when you're when you're given these messages like you know where are you from or what are you or that's a weird name or you know all those messages they just sort of pile up if, if you only had like one every year then they'd probably just be you know interesting behavior you'd be, oh yeah i just someone thought i was an outsider that was weird and not a big deal but if you get it all the time you get these tiny little messages you're not from here Mm-hmm. What are you? Because if I was white and had a name like Johnson, there would be no questions. Like you know, there would there would be an absence of those questions, and and it just grates on you over time. Just these little met, and you just get this this idea like, so is everyone looking at me like I'm a foreigner? Because mm-hmm. I'm not. Right. I, and, and it'd be so. Another thing is like, because foreigners are actually considered lesser. Right. You know, there's the real Americans and then there's foreigners. Right. They're they're considered visitors or they don't have as much power in the world. And so it, it translates into actual power and agency in, in society. And those little messages, you know, they they just go a long way. Um, so when I see an Asian person doing that, I don't perceive them as out. They're not outsiding because we're both Asian. Mm-hmm. You know, we're both aware of the fact that we're both solidly American. So I don't, I don't worry about that Asian person's uh, questioning or highlighting the fact that my last name is Honda, whereas a white person in a rural area, it, the, the suspicion for me is that this person thinks I'm an outsider. That, that's the difference. Yeah, that's a good explanation. Thank you for that. 
Um, <clears throat> just briefly, I want to mention an article I looked up, which was a Washington Post article by Fred Barbash in October 28th of 2015. And it was a discussion about the culture of victimhood. I'm sure you've heard that term. Um, yep. And it argued really about the difference from civil rights and really about the intention of the speaker or the doer. And um, I don't know if you got a chance to listen to that podcast uh, that I mentioned. Um, I've read the articles and I might have actually heard the podcast, but I'm familiar with the research and, and the author of that. Yeah, yeah. There's a particular um, podcast called The Upgrade and they did an interview um, with social psychologist Jonathan Haidt, H-A-I-D-T, um, who was a, and he's an author, he did The Righteous Mind, and the name of the episode is How to Talk to People You Don't Agree With. And <clears throat> he's also the co-author of The Coddling of the American Mind, How Good Intentions and Bad Ideas Are Setting, a gener- setting Up a Generation for Failure. So if anybody did want to go and listen to that, it's actually 10 minutes to 32 minutes into the uh, episode where this interview takes place. And so I just made some some notes to kind of throw out there as his statements and then kind of get your reaction, if that's okay. Yeah. Um, so Hate uh, in this interview, argues that, quote, campus, campus culture is reducing Gen Z's abilities to engage with different opinions making them more anxious and more prone to take offense. And students were beginning to ask for protection from words like trigger warnings, safe spaces, and having strong reactions to books and speakers. I know you've talked about that a little bit on your podcast too. So as a professor, how do you feel about the quote campus culture? I find that people who talk about this topic have no connection with campuses actually. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so uh, I, I always find it a little funny. Like, I'm a professor who works at a campus on one of the most liberal, uh, you know, organizations that has ever existed. And we market ourselves not as liberal, but as socially just. You know, that is the number one thing we push forward and, and the number one thing we differentiate ourselves from other organizations that we've, that's a value of ours that we um, actually things around and history comes from that you know like Antioch University 150 years 160 years ago was there was all these like uh, uh, milestones that we f- were the first you know we're the first to have like a paid woman as a professor in like the the mid 1800s you know what I mean I can't in a, in a paid black professor like I can't remember the exact details but mm-hmm. uh, Martin Luther King's wa- wife Coretta Scott King went to Antioch. Wow, I didn't know that. And and Martin Luther King talked at our graduation, you know, while he was still alive. Um, Not our Seattle campus, but, you know, one of our other campuses. Anyway, the point is, is that I exist in one of the most, you know, liberal uh, campuses that could exist, and I don't see any of this stuff. Mm -hmm. Um, I'm I'm, I'm biased, I guess, but I, I can tell you as some, as a professor and as a former program director that the threats that are being talked about in the media like students rising up against the administration for you know this or that frivolous lawsuits or whatever uh, is terror was terrifying to me and and I you know put some effort into it but not actually that much part of it is just that 
if you just navigate yourself as a professor and as a program as and as a program director in such a way that doesn't hurt people's feelings how about that for a novel concept <laughs> uh then people tend not to rise up against you and these examples on other campuses where they will highlight in my estimation what's happening is that these little things are happening and there's this general attitude of us versus them that develops and i've seen professors do this where they'll where they will say like oh these you know these millennials or these gen z's people you know they're so entitled all the time and i just find it to be really gross and not accurate in in my experience mm -hmm. uh, young people today are just shameful and just as insecure and just as terrified as we were when we were young they just don't look like it because we're not looking in the right place but anyway so i find that uh you know complicated systemic problems happen at these other universities and then the and then out of the thousands upon thousands of interactions and and you know good moments and bad moments the worst moment will be caught on camera because now everyone has a camera in their <laughs> right they film these like awful exchanges between professors and students they take like 10 seconds out of that and they put it on the internet and they're like look at how entitled campuses are and if you just exist on a campus then you'll you'll be like very few people would do such a thing and e even among the people who would something's got to go terribly wrong uh as a as a crowd dynamic or as a as a pr with with your students you know something's got to get really weird for that to happen you know uh so i so there's that i will say that um does that answer your question? I don't, <laughs> I, I, yeah, I, I think I that the initial quote that they were talking. Oh, well, the other thing I'll say is, are there entitled assholes who go to school? <laughs> uh, yes, uh, there have always been entitled assholes who go to universities, right, and take classes, and the stuff that comes out of their mouth is. Uh, from that entitled asshole perspective, that that has never not been the case. Uh, highlighting those individuals and saying that represents the generation is scientifically inaccurate. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, he does mention also uh, kids born in 1995 and on were that first generation to be connected to social media, which of course we weren't when we were kids. But to have that just inundating them from age 13 on. And then uh, he mentions being able to have a, that connection between controlling social media environment versus real world. Like being able to block someone or mute someone or mute a game or mute a video. And then in the real world, you can't do that. And he's, he's arguing that that's contributing to their, I don't know, sensitivity maybe. Yeah, I mean, that's an interesting argument. It's hard to say. I, I find these discussions to be um, interesting, but anyone who claims they have a causal link between those things is um, doesn't understand how data works and, and, and how causation works. It's hard to say, and we'll never know. Um, it, it's hard to measure, blah, blah, blah. But really what he's getting at is at so the basis of this guy's argument is actually sound. 
Uh, he starts from a place of uh, what I would consider to be convincing, and then he branches off into very unconvincing areas, mm-hmm. which is a, a hallmark of a charlatan trying to sell books, <laughs> which he is. Um, there, are, there are many who come before him, and there will many who will come after. But the, the basis of his, of his research or the research that he's pulling is sound in that over time there have been different cultures of how to i don't know kind of appeal to society or how to get things done and in the past there in recent past there was more of a culture of um i can't remember the exact word he used if it was honor or something but it was like when you look at martin luther king he uh, stood up he you know tried to stay honorable he uh, it didn't complain or didn't victimize, you know, he didn't point out he was a victim a lot of the times. Mm-hmm. He was more focusing on like, uh, you know, trying to build people up. Let's, you know, let's move forward. And there's pros and cons to that, to that. Uh, I'm not describing it well. He describes it much better, but there's, there's a certain mode of like trying to appeal to society or trying, or your interpretation of what's happening to you as in, society whereas today uh, which i think is you know valid in terms of my observations people today try to appeal to society through amping up their victimhood now the word victim is such a loaded term in our society you know mm-hmm. acting and playing the victim we tend to use that word when we're uh, looking at someone and saying that their that their victimhood is invalid that they are a faking or drumming up uh, their victimhood. But actually, that's not what the research is showing. What the research is showing is that uh, people are trying to appeal to others by showing, like, look at the things, the bad things that are happening to me. So, you know, uh, someone, and this, hap- and this happens all the time, like, the Me Too movement is essentially a victim culture uh, movement. And I don't think anybody uh, would say that the b2 movement is a bad idea but uh, well some people might <laughs> well no rational person I mean, uh people uh people I, I would imagine some people misunderstand what the b2 movement is because they've been fed something quite silly but right the notion that people regardless of their gender uh have the right not to have them uh you know actually harassed raped assaulted um you know, pressured into having sex, you know, everyone would agree that that's, that's great. And raising awareness around that is great. Um, so, but that's a victim culture movement, you know, that the me too movement, it, the, the, it's in the phrase, you know, me too, I will victimized too. So, so the, the uh, victim culture movement or the victim culture kind of emergence, it, it's just a difference in the way that we do things now partially uh, because of Twitter and all this kind of thing, because people can speak up. You don't really need a leader like Martin Luther King because you, everyone can speak for themselves in a, in a way. Um, so, but, so that's sound. I agree with that. And I'm like, oh, that's interesting. I hadn't really thought about that movement. I like, you know, societal philosophical observations like that. It's interesting. Mm-hmm. And it's interesting to think about, like, you know, so when we go back to 200 years ago, I think that's when they called it honor culture. And there's still people that are in honor culture today. Um, and, you know, like the thing between Alexander Hamilton and uh, Burr or whatever. <laughs> like, like you had two, 
politicians who were privileged and could have avoided such a thing, but because one person called the other person out, they did a duel and, you know, they would kill each other. Uh, and because if they didn't do that, then they would be seen as um, a terrible person. Whereas today, you can't, it, you don't necessarily duel someone or beat someone up to establish your honor. You say, you humiliate them by saying, you victimized me. That's the way you can humiliate other people is to say, you are a racist or you are a sexual assault person or you are this and that. And, and that's what works. Whereas in the past, you know, Alexander Hamilton wouldn't say, you know, Burr, I think is, what's his name? Burr? Was that the guy? Yeah. Yeah. And is it sad that I only know about that because of drunk history? I I don't know what that (laughs) says about our education, but. I think it's a very educational show (laughs) and hilarious. Anything that can deliver in, uh, yeah, I love that show. So, you know, uh, Alexander Hamilton didn't say, you know, Burr is committing microaggressions against me or Burr is being unfair to me. Burr is, um, you know, he, he didn't, that's not what he did. He's like, I'm just going to shoot him. Now, according to the discourse, not one, one culture is not better than the other. You can see the problems with an honor culture. There are people today in America who still exist in that honor culture, right? Where it's like, uh, like gang violence. Okay. You know, one gang shot another gang and so now honor culture dictates you got to shoot them back and it, it's like these are not functional ways of behaving in life so 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 the baseline understanding is not a we don't place a value on these different cultures we just observe them and say okay we're shifting over time mm-hmm. um but what this guy does is he ex- is he tap he takes that research and he bridges this massive chasm uh, to a very common uh, false notion in our society among, shall we say, conservatives, who believe that our society is made up of a bunch of whiners and a bunch of entitled, um, you know, people who have false entitlement, and and therefore, you know, we have a problem, right? And so that's and the title of his book says it all. I mean, there's nothing more biased than, than the title. I mean, read read the title of his book. Again. Yeah, yeah, it's, uh, let me flip my page here, uh, The Coddling of the American Mind, How Good Intentions and Bad Ideas Are Setting Up a Generation for Failure. Yeah, for failure. How yeah. the hell does he know that? Like, <laughs> if anything, we're doing so much better than, than we were in the past. Uh, women are getting paid more. There's less lynchings in the, than in the past. Uh you know, people of color are being hired more, not as much as they should, but, you know, more, mm-hmm. you know, there, there are now we're having problems with like, uh, poverty and this kind of thing. We need to do some work on that, but, but how are we failing? Like, it's just a, it's just a different way that our society deals with victimization is, is the point. So, right. Well, and I'm glad to hear your thoughts on this particular person, because, I think it's easy for people, especially people, white people, um, to get sucked into this narrative that he creates. Like you said, he takes this good, solid foundation and then kind of gently and skillfully twists it so that as you're reading along, you're kind of sucked into, oh, yeah, this is a good idea. And then all of a sudden you're over here in left field with victimhood and you didn't even know you were going there. And then you're like, wait, is that a good idea? Wait, (laughs) wait. Right. And if and he's uh, 
one, he's speaking to the choir. Like the people who are paying attention to him are people on the right. Mm-hmm. People, people on the left are not paying attention to him. But people, like if you look at news outlets and whatnot, like the people who are quoting him and talking about him, because he is a convincing quote-unquote scientist who, mm-hmm. is, who, is, who has proven that our society is a victim culture, which to, to people on the right is associated with something bad, mm-hmm. as if honor culture is something good. You know what I mean? <laughs> right. Uh, and, and so, uh, so uh, it's, it, it's interesting uh, and uh, uh, aggravating. Because uh, I, I, I didn't hear the podcast that you are citing, but I, I did listen to an interview with him a long form interview with him somewhere else. It might've been the psychology podcast. I'm mm. not sure. But he, uh, I, I learned everything I needed to from that interview. Cause again, he starts off. I was like totally agreeing with him. I was like, Oh, okay. Yeah. Okay. And then he just, as you say, skillfully slides ever slowly yeah. into this notion of like, everyone's a whiner and we are raising a bunch of entitled brats and we need to, you know, stop this. And our society's going down the tube. And I was like, what? Like, how did you get there? Like, <laughs> that, you know, how do you know that? You know, and, and the tone to me was so much like kids today. I can't tell you how many times I hear serious scientists basically um, uh, just saying some complicated version of kids today. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. And, you know, he and I don't want to keep talking about him forever, but just one more thought that um, he mentions is, he felt like the term microaggression itself was inaccurate because of intent and perhaps a more accurate term he suggested was faux pas. And it kind of goes back to the definition of it doesn't have to be intentional, but where's the line between ignorance and finally having some responsibility for knowing what you're saying? Well, I don't disagree with that. I, I do. Uh, when he does talk about microaggressions, he seems largely unaware of the reality of it as a white male right (laughs) like which doesn't surprise me um but i don't you know i i get why uh, i don't mind changing the language i mean as long as we understand that faux pas is something to really avoid you know Mm -hmm. we need to we need to look at this as a society um, I think one of the, but I'm going to add another element to this, which is that liberals are not necess- are not, in my um, judgment, doing a good job at helping people like him understand microaggressions. Um, I very rarely hear discourse around microaggressions that actually I, I agree with on, on from liberals or conservatives. I mean, obviously conservatives, uh, I'm not um, typically. Uh, enthusiastic about their discourse, but but even people on the left, like already the distinctions that we've already made uh, are not typically talked about. That typically what people say is, you know, uh, like someone points out my name uh, at a grocery store, that's racist. And I've already said like, well, if it's an Asian person, <laughs> right? Uh, it's not, I don't feel it as racism because we both know we're American and he's just commenting on my name a white person says especially if we're in rural America they point out my name I don't know they're being racist I don't know they're biased about Asians but I suspect it so um, and when I go to Cuba and they go 
go ching chong ching chong and they pull their eyes to their side um i don't interpret that as racism because of the context so but what people on the left will do is they'll be like well that's racist you can't do that that's that's sexist you can't do that that's a microaggression you can't do that and it's like but all of that's nuanced well nuanced and it depends on how it's received that's right right and that's the that's the part that is completely left out and i think what the problem is is that people have a hard time admitting when they're hurt you know i've already talked about how it will hurt my feelings you know if someone gives the impression like they believe i'm not american that hurts my feelings because i feel very american my family has been you know in the united states uh, on my white side since the 1600s on my japanese side for 120 years in washington state you know <laughs> yeah so, so i feel very washingtonian and very american um and so to imply repeatedly from people that i'm not american it just hurts my feelings i'm just like you know i don't i don't i don't denigrate people from japan but it's like i'm i'm so far from japan in terms of culture why are people it just hurts and so but i find that people on the left when they're talking about microaggressions or this kind of thing they don't mention that element and i think uh when you don't mention that element it's easily misunderstood as pc culture and as there's these rules you have to follow and i think it's quite confusing to white people they're just like so so what just tell me the rules and it's like there are no (laughs) other than other than try to predict what will hurt someone's feelings which everyone understands is a good rule like you can just tap into that rule for white people and be like you know unless you're sure um you know don't do something that might have a slight chance of hurting someone's feelings that's that's the rule um and and maybe ask people like so i was just about to ask you about your last name but would that hurt your feelings because i don't want to make you feel like an outsider uh you know i'm guessing if someone did that to me i'd be like oh my god thank you you know go ahead ask go ahead (laughs) you know what's up with your last name you know and i from that context i'd be like well this person they're not trying to outside they're just interested in my name you know um you know i do this all the time myself i do microaggressions all the time like like i think i've talked about this in the podcast I had a, a student, a colleague of mine, who she says, oh, I'm Native American. Or I can't remember how I found out she's Native American. And I immediately ask, oh, what tribe? Mm-hmm. And I don't know why I asked that question, but I know I had somehow absorbed that notion that that's the question you ask in situations like that. <laughs> and, and uh, you know, it's, you know, what are they supposed to say? Like, oh, I'm this tribe. And I'm going to be like, oh, like, I don't know why it matters to me, but... But she immediately said to me, actually, I don't answer that question. And I was like, oh, my God, what did I just do? You know, uh, she's like, you know, I, I just don't answer that question. And I was it was super awkward. Uh, I was mortified that I had stepped on some landmine or something. And, you know, inadvertent, but learned my lesson that at least for one person, when you ask that question, you know, uh, what tribe it's it's and I'm guessing surmising that for native american people they get asked that so many times that uh it becomes kind of grating too uh, i'm guessing for native american people they're just like do you really care <laughs> do you know what i mean like what's the what's the difference to you what tribe i'm from uh, 
plus the whole word tribe kind of has issues. But anyway, um, I actually still don't know why it bothered her. But, you know, I, I do it all the time, too. It's just that, you know, there's just sort of automatic scripts we fall into. And we just need to pay attention and ask around and make sure we don't hurt people's feelings. Well, you've slid right into the next section of my notes, which is exactly uh, that, which is PC culture. And I had done another episode um, about how PC culture kind of started out as trying to be inclusive and not hurt people's feelings. Like, don't be a dick. That's kind of my catchphrase. And it's morphed into meaning you can't say anything without someone getting offended and that they're intolerant. So, and I'm glad you brought up the, the Native American example because it is important to know that not all people are going to react the same way. Um, I did uh, one of my papers for my grad school about uh, the Tulalip tribes, which I've lived here in Snohomish County within probably 20 miles of that reservation, which is also problematic, but um, the word reservation, um, all my whole life. And I didn't even know that Tulalip wasn't a specific tribe. It's actually 30 tribes that signed a treaty and moved to that reservation. Um, but in her world, the person I was interviewing, the way that they introduce each other in a formal setting is very specifically tribe driven. And so, you know, I think it's your point is good and valid that you should ask an individual how they feel about it because someone might be very offended about um, asking what tribe they are because it's, you know, they hear it all the time and it's grating. And also someone might be very prideful and want to tell you and, and happy that you recognize that they are an individual thing and it's not everyone's all one Native American tribe, if, if that makes sense. Yeah, interesting. I didn't even know that. I, too, have lived in the Tulalip tribe area for my entire life and had no idea that detail. <laughs> And that's pretty shameful, you know. Uh, I absolutely would have thought if someone lived on the Tulalip tribe, I would be like, oh, you're from the Tulalip tribe, you know, the Tulalip reservation. Right. And they would have been like, no, actually, we're 30 different. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it's it's three main tribes and then um, several smaller local tribes kind of all pooled together. Interestingly, that's the one that um, Chief Seattle decided not to sign that treaty and not to move his people. And that's one of the reasons the Duwamish tribe has a problem with getting federally recognized status. So that's just a side note. But Oh, interesting. Yeah. So, <clears throat> yeah, PC culture. Um, what are your thoughts about just the term PC culture? And, you know, I, I get but going back to don't hurt someone's feelings, you know, be sensitive. But do you think it's changed when, from the term first starting? And do we need to be quote unquote politically correct? Right. So there are two problems that we've kind of touched on already, which is that for people who are hostile to the notion of uh, empathy about these aggressions and racism and microaggressions, they will point towards PC culture and will say, oh, you know, it's just this. Essentially, it's just saying like Donald Trump will do this. Essentially, it's like there's just a bunch of whiny liberals who want to impose weird rules just because they want to seem superior or they want to look down on, you know, quote unquote, real Americans. God. Um, <laughs> but, uh, uh, and then people uh, who are pro uh, sort of having empathy for this sort of thing, they don't 
explain it well. Like I said, you know, they will actually, in my experience, talk about it in such a way where it actually is essentially what conservatives are complaining about, where it's like there's do's and don'ts. And right. Like, um, like take an example, like with trans people who use they instead of he or she. Mm-hmm. Um, with that one, it's there are certain pockets of, of culture and people who have become extremely accustomed to using they instead of he or she. And there are vast, you know, swaths of our society that are not used to that yet and are having trouble with it because it takes a while to adjust. And what some people I've seen do, uh, whether they're trans or not, uh, will just jump down the throat of people who are not accustomed to that yet mm-hmm. and might even and might even be trying but they might even be trying to adjust their brain to using they but it takes a while it's just it's a it's a syntax thing that our brains it just takes a while to rework our neurons and i don't think that helps i don't think it helps to jump down people's throats when either they're unaware or maybe even they're trying. Now, if someone just comes flat out and says something like locker room talk to, to uh, uh, you know, didn't dismiss the notion that sexual assault is somehow uh, normal and normalized for men to, to, to brag about. I mean, not all men but, just grab them by the pussy? Yeah. And brag about it? Um, <laughs> the... Uh, feel free to jump down those people's throats because that is an overt message that deserves mirth. But what I find is some people on the left are, they'll jump down people's throats for the smallest of things. And that has to be tempered. Now I understand for some people who have been transgressed upon so often, you know, hundreds of times a day, every day for their entire life, the last, you know, straw on the camel's back really uh, throws them into a rage, which I get. I've been there. Mm-hmm. Like, like uh, I think I've talked about this on the podcast before. I can't remember the example I gave, but I think I was saying something like, "The next person who asks me about my last name, I'm just going to tell him to shut the fuck up." <laughs> I can't remember what I said, but you know, uh, there's a certain point where I'm just like, I can't take it anymore. Even though, for this other, for this, you know, the next person who does this to me. They might have never done it to another human being ever before, but it's the billionth time for me. Right. So I, so I get that on some level, but at the same time, it has to be, has to be, uh, we have to take all that into consideration, you know, like the uh, girl in high school who wore the Chinese dress. Do you remember that? Yes. I remember you talking about that in the episode too. Yeah. She wore the, the, she, she was, I think she was Latino if I'm not mistaken. Latina, sorry, or some, she was a, a girl of color from what I understood, mm-hmm. and she, but not Asian, and she wore a Chinese dress to, a traditional Chinese dress to prom. And she wore it just because she thought it was pretty, right? Is, yeah, am I remembering that? Yeah, and, she, and I think they're, did they live in Utah, if I'm not mistaken? Some mostly white community, let's just put it that way. And it was on Twitter and then she got blasted by Asians saying you're appropriating our culture and all that kind of stuff. And on some level it's like, okay, you know, I get it. But 
my God, the amount of hatred that she incurred from my brothers and sisters of the Asian, you know, descent uh, was completely overblown and not gauged to the situation. Mm-hmm. When you actually asked Chinese people, they're like, I don't care. She can wear a Chinese dress. That doesn't offend me. Um, and a lot of people were blasting her uh, who weren't Chinese. You know, they were like, I don't know, Filipino or something. Um, and also a lot of white people, incidentally, were blasting her. And uh, so no one is really dealing with this well. No no political side of the aisle is, is dealing with it well. Um, uh, and I just think more sophistication around the discourse is necessary. And maybe a little more grace for each other. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah. Empathy. Yeah, I think that was my big point in that episode, right? It was like uh, people who are unaware of microaggressions need to have more empathy about how they might be uh, hurting other people's feelings or bothering people. And then people who are traditionally harmed and marginalized by these messages need to have empathy for the aggressor because the vast majority of people are trying their best. Mm-hmm. And with a little bit of grace and a little bit of love and a little bit of, you know, uh, education, shall we say, uh, people will adjust, you know, they'll learn like, oh, okay, I didn't know that, you know, thanks, thanks for telling me in a nice way that I can understand. Now I know what to do in the future so I won't hurt other people's feelings because I don't want to hurt other people's feelings. Right. And having the reaction of jumping down someone's throat, if even if you're trying to be an ally, like you're the, either the white person saying that um you're just going to make the other person more defensive and not open or receptive to listening to what the other person's going through and maybe even force them further into their corner right oh yeah exactly um i have a stark example i won't name names but i have a a friend um, who is she's a lesbian and she is a activist and you know very politically minded uh, and she went up to some uh, some trans people whom she thought were identifying as women but at some point they had started to identify as trans and they and it was some social gathering and she she went up to these old friends of hers and she said hey ladies and they jumped down her throat in this really aggressive, mean, hostile way that I think from her account ended their relationship with these two these two individuals. And my friend is telling me this, and she's just like, what in the world? Like, I, I, I didn't know, or if I, I forgot me, I don't know. Like, I just said, hey, lady, it's like, am I that, am I an evil person? Like, the way they treated me, it was like I killed their puppy or something. Mm-hmm. And so, one, like I said, I get the rage because there's so much that people, particularly trans people, have to deal with on a daily basis that every bit is just, a, a, you know, it's just stabbing someone in the wound, you know. Uh, but on the other hand, if we're going to actually accelerate the process of change in our society, we have to figure out a way to help people, you know, move incrementally, you know, trying to trying to take people and throw them over the wall, so to speak. You know, it's, it doesn't usually work. 
Yeah. So anyway. Well, I know I've had you on for a long time, so I'm just trying to try to wrap this last part up a little quicker uh, and honor your time. Um, so it really nicely slides into the last part of what I want to talk about, which was hypocrisy. So uh, I listen to a lot of podcasts and another podcast called Oh No, Ross and Carrie. Um, they report on spirituality and fringe science and claims of the paranormal. But uh, Carrie was down in Australia and did a talk. Um, that's uh, the hypocrisy edition on November 9th of 2018, if anyone wants to hear it. Uh, and she really talks about how quick we as a society are uh, to be judgmental of others when they appear hypocritical. <clears throat> and But when it's ourselves, we tend to make excuses or exceptions. So she was giving some examples for, like, Mother Teresa has this worldwide worldwide appeal that she was this great person and canonized and all this and that she would take people in and be caring for them. But apparently some of those people really needed to go to the hospital and have penicillin. Um, that's kind of a weird example, but that was one of them. And then, um, of course, Bill Cosby, which you talked about at length in, in your episode. And then uh, like anti-gay religious figures turning out to be gay. Um, and a really great example that she gave was um, people. She said there was a study and I don't have the details of the study, but she talks about people who said that they were most concerned about climate change were the least likely to recycle and the most likely to use plastic. And the opposite was also true. So people that didn't weren't as concerned about climate change were the ones that were more likely to recycle. And uh, same with, you know, more, more righteous until it comes out, you know, directly. People with animal rights, you know, they're wanting to protect animal rights, but they're not necessarily vegetarian or vegan. And I just wondered if that's a surprise to you that it kind of seems like the the more you're righteous about something, the less likely you are to back it up and how easily we make exceptions for ourselves, especially due to our past acts. Like we've been so good about being an ally, for example, and then we do something and, oh, well, it's okay. You know, we've built up karma points or something, but someone else does something hypocritical and we're all over them. Yeah, I love this question. I don't have time to answer it, though. I have a client who is uh, going to call me in like 60 seconds. Oh, no. <laughs> uh, uh, but yeah, that's a wonderful intro to uh, an interesting discussion about hypocrisy. That, uh, that I like. The one thing I will say is that um, all of us are hypocrites. I'm a hypocrite in, in the sense that you're defining it. Um, I'm a massive tr- climate change, um, you know, I don't know person <laughs> and, and I drive a car and I use electricity and you know I, I I'm polluting the environment on a daily basis and uh yeah it's it's awful so maybe we you know we could another time to talk about that yes well thank you so much for your time and I look forward to another talk with you great thanks and here's where we had a break and continue the conversation from the day before Uh, I just want to kind of review where we last left off. We can just jump right in. So we're talking about hypocrisy. And I was mentioning a podcast where um, Carrie was talking about how quick we all are to judge other people when they appear hypocritical. And there were some examples there. She also describes the root words, meaning indecisive or have not decided or inner struggle, which is what hypocrisy is supposed to mean. And she discussed uh, maybe 
being able to look at two views of a conflict and try to use the pro view of their argument to start a conversation instead of attacking the view that you don't agree with. And um, <clears throat> there's also examples of how we give ourselves passes, especially due to past acts. So if we have behaved in a way that's congruent with our belief, then even if we don't do the thing that we're agreeing with or supporting, then we give ourselves a pass, but then someone else does something hypocritical and we're quick to jump on them. So one of the things we were last talking about is people that recycle um, <clears throat> are really strong into climate change. And then they're the least likely to recycle, whereas the people that were not as concerned about climate change were more likely to recycle. And you were mentioning about your um, straw, the thing about the straw. I was talking about a straw? Yeah, you you, uh, you in your podcast, um, actually it was on the Paul Logan episode, uh, you got into your libertarian streak versus the plastic straws and the regulations and kind of the, you know, you, you yourself feel like you want to support things that help climate change and reduce our imprint, but then you also have this libertarian streak where you don't want more rules imposed on us. Yeah, I guess in a perfect world, people would just regulate, regulate their behavior in a way that was moral and just and for the better good of everybody, but that doesn't always happen. So I struggle with that personally. I, I don't know if the government cares about my personal struggle with that, but <laughs> uh, I, yeah, I, I kind of struggle with it. I, I think in the end with uh, thoughtful legislation, uh, we can um, keep people's freedoms while also thinking about future freedoms that will be limited by uh, if we don't take action you know if if, uh, if for example with regards to environmentalism people might feel like like a, a tax on gasoline for example other countries have much higher taxes on gasoline and we could do that and there's talk about it occasionally and there already is i think of early high tax on gas gasoline to some extent but but uh, the idea is, is that, well, if you're going to be driving your car, you are causing a lot of, you're contributing to a lot of problems in the world, particularly as we move forward and, uh, you know, rising sea levels and that kind of stuff. And so, uh, you know, you could make an argument, for example, that every person who drives their car contributed a slight amount to the death and destruction of the wildfires in California this last year. Mm -hmm. Not like directly, obviously, and not knowingly, but when you raise um, the temperature of the planet overall, climate change happens, weather patterns change, which result in more wildfires in California. And that was incredibly destructive and cost a lot of money. So you could say, well, then that cost has to be passed on to those who uh, you know, contributed to that. And so taxing gasoline would be a logical choice there. Uh, I think that, uh, so the libertarian in me is, is like, and I want to be clear, I'm not a quote unquote libertarian. I just have a value of libertarianism in terms of freedom of choice and that kind of thing. But I, I, I don't vote libertarian. I don't subscribe to libertarian newsletters or anything <laughs> like that. Um, and 
so uh, uh, it challenges that because it's like, well, shouldn't people, shouldn't we just tell people, look, if you drive your car, it'll contribute to climate change and things like wildfires. And it's up to you to decide whether or not you're going to drive your car. And uh, although in principle, that sounds nice, but in reality, it ends up destroying the earth and, and a lot of really bad things happen. So in those instances, like in that example, um, I would support a tax on gasoline um, just for that reason alone. And there's, you know, hundreds of other reasons why the cost should be passed on to, uh, to the uh, people who drive cars. And to be clear, I am not a scholar on environmentalism or government or taxes. I am a scholar on psychotherapy and psychology only. So this is me speaking as a extreme person. <laughs> well, I, I think I really just wanted to get back to the question of, are you surprised that <clears throat> people that are more righteous about certain things, regardless of if it's climate change or animal rights or anything like that, that they tend to be the ones that are not as, I guess they're what we would consider more hypocritical, like they're not doing those things in their daily lives, even though they're the loudest proponents of the thing and are willing to jump on other people. Yeah, I, I've given it some thought over the years because of the news stories, like you mentioned when we talked before about how you would have a, a you know, anti-gay politician or minister or something, and they come out to be found that they are, in fact, engaging in um, same-sex relations, and how weird that is, you know, mm -hmm. that it's like, it's, we, we can all understand that some people are repressed or scared to um, realize their sexual orientation or are in a community where that, that's hard for them. So we can imagine that, but why would one of those people come out so strong against gay people? Like, it's one thing to be closeted and, and, and afraid. It's another thing to be closeted and afraid and like a rabid, rageful attacker of, of gay people. And it's impossible to know scientifically, but the conceptualization I have is that when we have pulses that bother us, we engage in defense mechanisms. Um, like one of the things, just getting back to the environmentalism, cars, um, Seattle people drive a lot of cars and Seattle people tend to be more environmentally minded. And uh, how, how do they live, how do they sleep at night, uh, you know, with that contradiction? Well, they go into denial about it, as do I. It's like, every time I get in my car, I don't think I'm raping the earth. <laughs> I, just, I, I, just, I just get in my car and drive, you know what I mean? Right. Or I blame it on something else, like the example with the, with the uh, recycling, I haven't heard those those research findings, but but um, it has been found uh, a, a, as a parallel to the research you identified that when people recycle, they're more likely to do things that are bad for the bad for the planet. The idea goes is is like, well, I recycled, you know, I I did something good, so now I can do something bad. Right, right. That's, That's what she like, was mentioning. Yeah. Right. It's like. Um, people who exercise, uh, some people who exercise will drink more that night or eat more later that day because it's like, well, I exercise, so now I get to eat more. And 
you know, we just engage in these systems of denial and, and it's functional in a lot of instances because we can't just be constantly dealing with all the horribleness. But taken to an extreme, if you have a particular complex inside of you, like I hate myself for being gay and my community hates me for being gay and I wish I wasn't gay. Uh, you could imagine that you would, um, for some of those individuals, a small minority probably, develop a, uh, a defense mechanism against that where it's like, well, I'm going to attack it. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm going to show I'm going to show the world and myself that I am like the farthest away from gay that one can get, which means that I'm going to attack gay people. I'm going to attack the quote unquote gay lifestyle. And maybe that will get maybe that will solve this inner strife that I'm having. Uh, it doesn't usually result in that, you know, and a lot of our defense mechanisms don't work. So so the hypocrisy um, is you know, one conceptualization is, is to look at it that way. Yeah. And, and certainly like you mentioned, I mean, we're, we're all hypocrites in some way or another. I can think for myself that animal rights is a, you know, important to me and yet I'm still eating steak. So, you know, every time I eat a steak, I'm feeling bad about how cows are being treated. And she kind of <clears throat> gets back to thinking about when people are, are having those struggles is thinking of it as an inner struggle of two values in competition rather than just writing them off for having crazy notions. Like, and she was even specifically mentioning like the anti-vaxxers. Like, I'm sure they're not thinking to themselves, oh, I want these kids to get measles, for example, in Washington State right now. Um, they're just having an inner struggle with how they feel about you know, is there a danger in vaccines um, versus the herd vaccination and, and helping other people? And so she mentions trying not to ignore what we have in common, start bridging the gap and asking how they came to the conclusion um, to be able to have conversations with people instead of attacking them, um, trying to figure out, you know, it may not resolve in a day or even months or years. And not trying to be the victor and telling them that they're wrong, but trying to figure out where they're coming from and see if you can find the common ground and the thing that you might actually agree with. Yeah, I totally agree with that. I was thinking the exact same because someone uh, wrote in and asked us to talk about the anti-vaxxer thing. Because as you, you know, identified, Washington State has, I don't know, 25 cases of measles or something in, in a state where... Uh, we didn't, I think, in the past, we would go for years without having any cases of measles. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's... Um, yeah, I think it's in the 30s now, even. So the uh, discourse in the news or among conversations is to laugh at the anti-vaxxers. They're idiots. They, you know, who are these people? They're Jenny McCarthyites or something. And, uh, I, you know... I. I, I'm not going to say that I'm not um, prone to that kind of talk, but the solution doesn't lie there. It lies in what you're saying, which is to uh, reach out to these people and figure out, like, well, how did you get to this decision, and and how can we how can we help? You know, you understand like the full situation. It's still your choice. You know, you can still choose to vaccinate or not, but you know, let's let's talk about this. And I get why you're afraid. You know, mm-hmm. it's terrifying. To, to take in your infant 
to the physician and have this physician like jabbing your you know beloved child with a needle injecting god knows what into i mean the physician knows what but the, <laughs> the parent and the child that don't know what and and there is you know there's forms you fill out that say like um, there's a ch- chance that this could happen there's a chance that you know there's you look on the internet of course there's going to be all sorts of talk about um you know bad things happening and so you're thinking you know pros and cons you're like well con is it looks like this is a risk mm-hmm. uh, and and uh, there's other people saying yeah there's a kind of a risk of measles i don't even know what measles is you know what is measles you know i don't even know what that is because because we've eradicated it, you know, I don't know the exact term. Eradication isn't, I think, the technical term, but we, you know, we haven't, we, we've effectively eliminated it from our population, and so we don't really know what it is. And so it's all about helping people understand their fears. I suspect that um, as measles gets more news coverage, that some of the parents who are leaning in the direction of anti-vaccination will start to get scared of measles and they're, they'll be willing to take that chance with the vaccination to avoid measles. Cause the, you know, cause I think, did someone die? Did a kid die from measles? I don't, I don't remember if anyone's actually died yet, but I feel like as of yesterday or the day before there was another case and they're all in the same County, but I think there's 35 or 36 cases. Yeah. And, and they're, it's a pretty debilitating right. illness. Yeah, it's not just like having the cold, you know. Right, it lands you in the hospital at times. So I think that that fear will, you know, spread and parents will say, well, I'm afraid of the vaccination because I don't really understand it, but um, I'm also afraid of the measles, so Mm -hmm. might as well vaccinate. Yeah, and um, good point. I hate to think that fear is the thing that motivates people because that seems to be everything in our political system right now, but we don't want to go there. Uh, So the last thing I want to mention about her talk was she mentioned people coming from four different perspectives when you're starting to talk to people. And if they're coming from what she's calling a fringe science perspective, which is probably the anti-vax world, um, that they're still trying to work within science. There's some basis of science in there, even if they don't necessarily believe it. Then the next level, not necessarily in levels, but the next uh, option is conspiratorial, where they feel like evidence just isn't enough. And there's still room in there to to have discussion. Um, Once you start moving into the paranormal uh, perspective, then that's above conspiratorial and you may or may not have room to have those discussions. And then the last perspective she mentioned is spiritual, where it's pretty unlikely that you're going to change someone's mind. And really, if you don't have a good relationship with someone, or that's the point where you have to decide, is this conversation really worth having? And so I think that's really where I want to go with that with you is, at what point do you decide, you know, is this conversation really worth having? Do you really feel like you have to be the one that points out something or that someone's opinion is wrong or have a fight on Twitter. <laughs> yeah, that's a tough one. I have been struggling with that for a long time. You could even say since I was a child, I, I can remember times as a child where I would 
hear something that I knew was false or I thought was false, I should say. And there, there's actually just as a, as a, uh, I think I've told this story in the podcast before. There's this moment where we're sitting, you know, me and my family, we would eat dinner every night together at 5.30 on the dot. Uh, me, my parents, and my three siblings, we'd sit around a round white table and we had giant glasses of whole milk, like straight from the cow, <laughs> literally. <clears throat> my, my mom had a daycare and uh, one of the kids, uh, the parents, couldn't afford to pay for the daycare, so they paid with whole milk from a cow. Oh. That, that, and so we had five-gallon buckets. You know those buckets you get at Home Depot? Oh, yeah. We, we had five-gallon buckets of whole milk straight from the cow. And so that was like had, buttermilk. You had like cream on the top. Yeah, so you had <laughs> to like scrape off the, the cream, and it was non-pasteurized, so mm-hmm. it you know, could have killed us. <laughs> um. But we were milk drinkers. Anyway, my point is that uh, we're sitting around the table, and I was I must have been, I don't know, eight or something, maybe younger. And my older brother, who's seven years older than me, uh, somehow we got on the topic of astronomy and planet uh, orbits. And my brother said that Pluto was the, was the ninth planet. And this is before the whole dwarf planet um, uh, situation come along, back when Pluto was still a planet. And, and I said, well, actually, <laughs> Pluto is the uh, sometimes the eighth planet because it actually crosses the orbit of Neptune. I didn't and, even know that. Yeah. And uh, my brother says, oh, that's ridiculous. Don't be so stupid. Um, and now that I think about it, I, 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 I'm pretty sure that's still true. <laughs> <laughs> uh, either way, it was in a book that I had. and. Mm-hmm. My brother and my so in that moment, you know, I'm telling my brother, uh, actually, you know, Pluto can, is sometimes eighth planet. And in that moment, I thought, well, he's just going to say, oh, well, thanks for telling me or 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 I don't know. I thought he'd just drop it. But he sort of doubled down. He was mm. like, oh, you're so dumb. Or I mean, that's <laughs> that that's my memory anyway. You know, he he, he just kind of uh, doubled down on his position that. Uh, he knew what he was talking about, and I didn't. And I uh, leapt from the table, ran to my book, <laughs> brought it down, slapped it down on the dinner table for my entire family to see, and boom, right there in black and white was the Pluto orbit crossing the Neptune orbit, and there was no argument after that. And <laughs> so that solidified my desire to tell other people when they're wrong you know, there's, <laughs> there's a certain uh, glee or i don't know attention seeking or acceptance i get out of being right and so from that point forward or maybe even prior to that uh, i've just i've had a kind of an alarm bell whenever i hear things that i find to be dubious and which led me to like science and empirical observation and the philosophy of science scientism as as we might say in some circles and so uh like with the anti-vax thing i'm not a physician and i don't have any you know horse in the race as they say when it comes to vaccinations but aside from the fact that i'm one of the human beings in this society and don't want to you know incur infections Mm -hmm. because of people not doing which actually 
this ran through my mind. I'm like, how many measles? Because you're supposed to have, I think, like three measles vaccinations throughout your life. And I, I'm not sure if I've had all three. And so now I'm like worried. Am I going to get the measles? Just <laughs> anyway. Um, so like with the anti-vax thing, it's interesting, the article that you read, the, the different levels of it, uh, which I'm trying to apply to the anti-vax people because um, on what, so, the, you know, the, the layer just below rational thought, which would, which we would say you should vaccinate your kids. Uh, but just below was like, what was this? The second layer was like, they, uh, conspiratorial. They, they, well, wasn't there one right above that, like where they, they kind of question science or something? Well, that that's the fringe science level. So they're still trying to work within science, but they're saying like there's really like they use the debunked research that said that vaccines could cause autism, that kind of thing. Right. So so that so that makes sense to me. It's like I can identify people in the fringe science area for sure. Um, there was a whole thing around thalidomide, I believe, and and mercury and um, and uh, it was researched and debunked that it would lead to autism or whatever else you think is wrong with vaccines. And so that level I understand, the conspiratorial level I can understand because it's like um, if, if you believe that the government is lying to you or, you know, like um, one of the conspiracies around anti-vax people is that physicians or big pharma are just out to trick us all to earn more money or to retain power or something because mm-hmm. they don't want to relinquish money or power to um, alternative medicine and uh, this when you actually look into the industry of medicine doesn't make a lot of sense and um if it was a conspiracy, data would show that. Like someone, anyway. The point is, is the conspiracy doesn't hold a lot of uh, strength in most people's minds. Uh, so, so I've seen people like that for sure, right? But then you take it to the next level of like religion, or what was the next level? Like, yeah. Uh, um, well, paranormal was the next one, and then spiritual. Right. So paranormal. I'm trying to like apply that to the. Can you figure out how that would be applied to the anti-vax people? Uh, no, I think that was probably more of the fringe science conspiratorial level. Um, paranormal would be more, I guess, like some mystical or magical reason for something rather than science or conspiratorial. Whereas spiritual right. is God made it happen kind of thing. Right. Right. And I, I, maybe it's like evolution would be an example of on that spectrum where you get to religion and and uh, you know in the in the in the solid sound science area of evolution we have mainstream consensus of evolution and then you have the the next level of people who are fringe they're just like well you know i don't know i question scientists and what their claims are you know you'll hear conversations like that but they're still like trying to live in the realm of science then you get to the conspiracy, which I'm having a hard time identifying, the cons- you know, anti-evolution people thinking it's a conspiracy, maybe like a the a Jewish conspiracy against Christianity or something. I've never heard that before, but <laughs> uh, you know, you could imagine someone coming up with that. And then, of course, you get to the end of the line in terms of religion, and they're just like, "Well, 
God created the planet 6,000 years ago and the devil is creating evidence of evolution to uh, cloud people's minds and to trick them into not believing in God. Right. Uh, and there are, there are people who say that. Um, so yeah, I, that, that spectrum is interesting. It, it's interesting to think about. Yeah, I, I definitely have the same kind of problem that you have, which, you know, pointing out people <laughs> that are wrong. And I've really tried hard not to have those conversations. I think what probably let me led me down the social work road is I have those same strong feelings when I see something wrong in the social justice arena. And I can remember a very clear marker of this when I was in junior high, where I saw someone getting bullied. They were um, developmentally disabled. And this guy was just calling her names. And <clears throat> it was only me and her and him in this area. And he was much bigger than I was. And, you know, my mouth, I just walked right up to his face. And, you know, if you're going to pick on someone, you can just go ahead and pick on me. That's not cool. And of course, that put me in danger. I didn't think of that at the time. But that has been a streak through my life is the balance between fighting and feeling like, well, no one else is going to say something. So I have to say something. But I also don't want to be that person, you know? Yeah, it's tough. Um, I just saw a movie, First Reformed. Have you seen this movie? No, First Reformed. I'll write that down. Ethan Hawke. It's, did you see um, Lobster a couple years ago? No, what's that about? It's a weird movie, like comedy, surreal movie, but um, with Colin Farrell. But anyway, he, the same guy made a follow-up movie. Um, he's actually the writer of Last Temptation of Christ and Taxi Driver. And mm. Anyway, Paul Schrader. Um, uh, Shaver? Anyway, the movie... First Reformed is, I, I don't want to spoil it, but so I'm not going to, but <laughs> watch the movie. It has something to do with what we're talking about. But yeah, I mean, it's, it's, um, it's tough to watch things happen and to know what to do. I, I, I so it's funny because I, before taking a massive tangent, I was originally trying to answer your question, which was, <laughs> uh, what you asked me, which is, uh, that, you know, how, how do you essentially navigate the space around when you see something that is wrong or hypocritical or I don't know, um, how do you, what, how do you respond and perhaps how do you respond in a way that convinces other people to change their minds? Or and, how do you be okay with not responding? I mean, both, right. both scenarios. Yeah. And it's, it's hard because I... I don't know the answer to that question, and I, I've been extremely clunky with that in my life. Um, and I find that the options are so limited because, um, you know, you see something happening, and whether it's like, let's just get back to microaggressions, and what do you say? Mm -hmm. Because the often the interaction is is limited. Like you only have maybe like two exchanges before the interaction is going to be over anyway. So how do you explain everything that needs to be explained in that tiny little time, mm -hmm. you know, and, and how do you navigate people's feelings about it? 
And and what I find in a nutshell, because I've actually heard people give advice about this, uh, and I've thought about it myself. I mean, to be honest, what my solution is, I just don't do anything. Like, I'm just too afraid of the conflict, you know? I'm just like, okay. Um, because um, I just don't know what to do. And then I go on the podcast and, like, complain about it to everyone. <laughs> <hoping> that, <clears throat> maybe, like, uh, someone out there will some other person who might be in that realm might actually think about it, you know, and, and move on. <clears throat> and the podcast really allows, you know, us as podcasters to just kind of spout at a bunch of people without having to deal with their response right away, you know, mm-hmm. um, which, you know, has its pros and cons. But anyway, what, what I've heard other people do who um, give advice and have frequent conversations like this is something along the lines of, um, in your mind, you kind of have to slow down. You have to like gauge where the other person is and how to respond to them in a way that they can understand and, and not be hurt by and not be too challenged by. Like you don't want to challenge them too much. Right. Like if someone's talking about, for example, anti-vaccination and, and they're like, well, I heard, you know, that vaccination causes, you know, um, causes autism. And so blah, blah, blah. Um, or they say something like, well, you know, big pharma, of course, they're going to say that vaccinations are good because they make money off of it. So obviously in that, if you heard someone say that, they've absorbed quite a bit of propaganda. This isn't just a fleeting thought that they that they had. Mm-hmm. And, it, you know, in two exchanges with this person in the next 30 seconds, you're not going to be able to erase all that propaganda because you're just one person. And, and if you come out uh, screaming or come out strong, they're just going to be like, oh, this is one of the big pharma zealots, you know, or they, they have some vested interest or, you know, something. Right. They're probably going to double down on their reaction. Right. And they, and there's research actually showing that, that when you actually push people afterwards through uh, observation, empirical observation, people actually feel str- more strong about their position than before the exchange. Um, there's just this cognitive bias where we just, it's just easy for us. It's easier for us to dig in than to enter a gray zone. Mm-hmm. And so the response to that person is like, oh, interesting. Well, you know, I've, I've, read, I've read a lot of different kind of things about that. You know, I've, I've read, yeah, that big pharma has some problems for sure. And I've also read that vaccinations, like for the, you know, 99.99999% of the time is totally safe. Uh, maybe even a hundred percent safe. I, so I've, you know, I've kind of read both things and I don't know, it's just, it's just an interesting thing to think about. So in that, if, if you only have one chance to say something, you know, even though I don't believe that, you know, I, I'm, I'm expressing kind of a gray attitude when I have a very black and white attitude about anti-vaccination, right? but I'm expressing a gray attitude and I'm, and I'm not challenging the person directly. I'm not, ridiculing them and I'm not forcing them to uh, think too hard about their position. I'm just introducing this idea of just like, well, I have thoughts about that too. And I've, you know, I don't know. I'm, I'm, I'm kind of, uh, I, you know, I, I listen to both sides and, and then the person, it might open up their mind of like, Oh, I like this person. This person seems like a nice person. I don't have to dig in and, Maybe I'll look into that, you know, because that actually 
can work for some people. They want, they might in the, in the moment go like, well, I, I don't know. I think vaccinations are bad, but you know, you just planted a little bit of a, cause the way you presented it, it's, they accepted it into their heart later that day, they Google and they start, you know, looking into maybe what you were talking about. So I personally have a really hard time doing that though. <laughs> You know, I run upstairs, grab the astronomy book and slap it down. That's, yeah. that's, that's, that's my useful style. Yeah, I, I, am, I also have difficulty with that. I was thinking of the microaggression example. And I guess, again, it's, it depends on a lot of things. Who you're talking to, how long you think this interaction is going to be. Is it someone that you're interacting with a lot? Or is it just someone that you're going to have a 30-second exchange with? And either way, you should also take into account who's being microaggressed against, having some empathy for the person. Do they have a harsh intent or do they just make, like we said earlier, a faux pas and they just maybe need a little guidance as to think about what you're saying instead of saying, you can't say such and such anymore. Right, exactly. And so how do you help people with that? You know, yeah, people come from where they come from and, we just have to assume that everyone is trying their best and that they care. And once you assume that, then it helps to guide your response to them. You know, um, it, the analogy I, I always think about is when you're driving in your car and you're driving on the freeway and someone like almost, you know, they're, you know, you're in, a, you are in their blind spot. They change lanes and they almost hit you. Well, for most of us, me included, we're screaming, we're flipping them off, we're <laughs> honking, you know, we're, we're like yelling, you know, what's ah, that fucking idiot? What's wrong with you? Like, get off the road, you know, what's, you know, and because we have attributed a, a sort of intent in the other person that they are evil or stupid or inconsiderate, whereas if you're in the grocery store, and you're pushing your cart and you're coming around a corner and all of a sudden another person is coming around the same corner and, and you will almost hit each other with your carts. Cause you know, you didn't see, you both see each other. You don't flip off that person. <laughs> you don't scream at them. You don't think that they had an intention to ruin your day. You just think, Oh, it was an innocent mistake. And you might even, you might even say, sorry, my fault you might even like just throw yourself on the sword. Like that was my fault, even though you don't really think it was your fault. Well, just to bring back the hypocrisy in the same driving example, if you're the one driving and someone is in your blind spot and you move over and realize you cut them off, you may wave and, you know, give the, sorry, I didn't see you wave. And you're that same person in the other scenario, but you don't give that grace to the person in front of you that you were in their blind spot. Exactly. So, when we hear people commit microaggressions or, um, you know, dubious scientific uh, statements, we should try to give people um, some of that grace, as, as you're saying. Yeah, yeah. Well, I bet. Go but, ahead. But what one point before you move on is, I will point out that we live in a society where it is the norm vast majority of the norm to ridicule people who disagree with you. Yeah. Our, you know, 20 years ago, 
this was not, I mean, certainly people ridiculed people 20 years ago, but not nearly to the extent that people do today. I, I, I look at YouTube uh, just when I'm, want to pass the time and I'm bored. Uh, you know, I'll just go to the YouTube front page and there's all these recommended videos. You know what I mean? They'll mm-hmm. be like, these videos are recommended for you. And lately I've been getting a lot of Stephen Colbert, his, his TV show. And his, and I didn't know this, but his monologues, at least lately, are all about Trump, his mm-hmm. initial, his opening monologues. And they are, uh, you know, Stephen Colbert, come, people think of him as like this really smart guy, and he is. But when I've been watching his monologues, they aren't, you know, and he wouldn't say they are either. They're not news. It's not a, it's not a, a rational commentary on what's happening. Mm-hmm. He is coming up. He's he's finding things in the news, and then making jokes. Like the primary thing, his primary job is to make jokes. His primary, and I'm sure he would say this. Uh, John Stewart always said this. Their primary job is not to provide news, and if you're relying on them to give you the news, then you are way off course. Right. Their primary job is to make you laugh. That's what the show is. It's a comedy show. But I would guess that most people get their news from shows like this, you know. And on on the right, you're going to find shows like I don't know Fox and Friends, or I don't I don't, I don't even know what people Hannity or something, and. These shows are not news shows. They're totally designed as entertainment shows. Mm-hmm. And so we live in this world where it becomes totally normal to, to look at the other side of the aisle and just laugh at them, just like idiots. And I think that contributes to the uh, empirical observation that we have an ever-widening uh, gap between the right and the left in terms of ideology, in terms of acceptance in terms of openness to conversation again it's not like we were totally open in the past for sure but it's getting worse and i find that to be very upsetting as a person who likes to bring people together as a person who likes to empathize with all groups even those who i don't agree with it's 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 very upsetting to me to see that and to see you know there are, there are people in my circle, because I live in a left bubble, who will say things like, well, like Umberto once said, you know, Republicans don't have empathy. You know, mm-hmm. just, and, and, you know, and when I argued with him about it, he's like, no, no, no. You know, he was totally convinced that Republicans don't have empathy. <laughs> um, and or other people in my circle will think about you know, like if you if you said, let's say you met someone and you fell in love and you found out that they were Republican, what would you do? They're like, oh, I would instantly dump them. You know, That's just crazy. On, just on the fact that they're Republican. Now, everyone obviously can make a choice about you know, <clears throat> who, they, who they marry and who they date and whatnot. But that was not the case in my estimation 20 years ago. Mm-hmm. It, you know, people didn't think of you know, liberals and conservatives as like basically from a planet, you know, it's like today we just consider them to be so far away. And, and what ends up happening is both sides diverge and it's harder for us to actually 
agree on because we probably agree on a lot of things you know we all want safety we all want our children to prosper we all want to not abuse other nations or poor people or you know no one wants that and it makes it harder for us to come together you know as as evidence of you know the government shutdown it's like can't can't there be a common ground you know found again the government has always fought like this so it's not like it's exactly new but i don't know it's it's concerning to me. yeah yeah i mean <clears throat> in regards to the evening shows i almost <clears throat> excuse me i almost can't even watch them i used to be able to watch things like the daily show um being left-leaning uh, and it was funny but it wasn't as divisive and now i can hardly watch any show like that because it's just sad and tragic and yeah, dividing. It's it's not funny anymore. And when right. uh, when Trump got elected, uh, I was working in two very opposed places. I was interning at hospice, and I was working in an environment which was ninety percent uh, right leaning, Trump supporting, and that dichotomy of going back and forth between those environments and having my own kind of reconciliation with I know these people they're good people and yet how can they be supporting the values that are purported to be supported by Trump and that took me a long time to get over that and reconcile that in my own brain of these people as individuals are not that terrible thing that's being presented in the media as all people are this yeah exactly and being in a bubble uh, as you were not makes it harder to empathize quote unquote the other side because you just build up this caricature of the other side that isn't true you know you, you were interacting with people who had points of who were you know the, the thing that i i sometimes like to reduce this to is the only difference between Republicans and Democrats is once every couple years, they check a different box on a ballot. <laughs> you know, like it, it's it's that is that is the empirical difference between those two groups of people. There are so many similarities. You know, when when you the Republicans that you were working with, I'm guessing, you know, had similar sense of humor had a uh, similar sense of goodness in the world, similar sense of empathy, similar sense of um, uh, charity to other people. Yeah. Uh, as long as we weren't talking about Trump specifically, they were right. fine. <laughs> right. So this, uh, under seeing that and understanding it, I think uh, would help. But, you know, as we further silo and bubble ourselves, it makes it harder, harder and harder to... Um, see the reality of that and that's you know it's it's sad to me well and of course I, I, have we separated the way we live and how we live and gerrymandering and gentrification and all that has not helped that because we've separated ourselves even more by the way we live right and even the internet it can become quite siloed but even when we do occasionally see things from quote-unquote the other side it's um often in such a hostile context mm -hmm. that nobody really furthers their understanding of each other, you know? Yeah. So, yeah, it's, um, 
to, I guess as I'm talking about it, uh, it's mostly just sad to me that um, people are being hurt. People on the right are being hurt by people on the left. People on the left are being hurt by people on the right. And it's just a sad situation. I, I've often compared the conflict between the left and the right to a marital uh, session, a, a couple's therapy session, because mm-hmm. it, it feels the same to me. Yeah. When a couple comes into my office and they are having troubles in their marriage, it'll almost always boil down to this um, interaction where they have just chronically hurt each other's feelings without intending to hurt the other person's feelings. And then each of them gets hurt and then each of them doesn't want to be vulnerable about that hurt, but instead they get angry and retaliate or distance themselves, which furthers to hurt the other person. Mm-hmm. And it just goes and it just goes around and around and around. And the solution in couples therapy is to help each of the partners to identify that they are hurt, to express that hurt and trust the other person cares. The other person then goes, oh, so when you were giving me the cold shoulder for three days, it wasn't because you were punishing me. It wasn't because you were angry at me per se. It was because I hurt your feelings three days ago. And I didn't even know you cared about that because you've been so cold lately. Mm-hmm. Oh my God, I'm so sorry. I hurt your feelings. Um, please don't give me the cold shoulder for three days. Please just tell me I hurt your feelings and, and I will say I'm sorry right away. Cause I, I, I always forget to unload the dishwasher, you know, or whatever it was. And then they salvage their marriage and they come together and they might not agree on everything. They might, one might be a Republican, one might be a Democrat, who knows, but the understanding is like, Oh, it's hurt. That is what's happening. And that's what I see the Democrats and Republicans doing. You know, the, the, the left is hurt that right elected Donald Trump. The -hmm. left is hurt that the right will say things that discount microaggressions or discount sexism. Um, the, the let the right is hurt that the left thinks of the right as a bunch of racist morons, essentially. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And each side is hurt, but they don't express that, you know, Republicans, Donald Trump doesn't go to Nancy Pelosi and say, um, Nancy Pelosi, when you refuse to work with me on this wall thing, it hurts my feelings. <laughs> and yeah. uh, and it makes me scared that the American public is going to think I'm weak. And it makes me scared that I'm not going to have my grand wall that I've always wanted to have. And, you know, is there something we can do here? Um, and Nancy Pelosi doesn't go to Donald Trump and say, when you ref- when you refuse to interact with us on so many issues prior to us gaining power, every instance it just hurt because you were just like marginalizing this side of the aisle and uh, were left out of our jobs. We couldn't, you know, we wanted to have a voice in this government to represent our constituency, and it hurt that you just completely left us out. Like you wouldn't even you weren't even listening to us, and so. Um, we are retaliating against you by refusing to deal with you at this 
Paul thing because we're sending a message that um, you hurt us and you can't do that to us anymore. Uh, you know, I don't know how politics would work if such a thing were, were to happen, but at the very least, the different populations are that way to each other. You know, the 40% of Americans against the other 40%. So what um, you're saying is we need a marriage and family therapist presidential candidate? I've often thought about it, you know, like uh, I thought Obama could be that person because he comes across a pretty level-headed guy who actually, when there was partisan fighting he would he would often try to tamp that down mm-hmm. um, he, he would often actually kind of yell at democrats to be like stop ridiculing he wouldn't use this language but he would he would just say like stop attacking on the right that's not helping right. i get that you i get that you love me and i get that you love the democratic party but that should extend into attacking people on the right that's not <clears throat> That's not the solution. I thought Obama was going to be that way. But yeah, sometimes I fantasize about that. I think that our politicians and, you know, again, I'm just a lay person, but I think that our political landscape is is like basically from like the 1700s where you have these figures who vie for uh, press attention and give a lot of speeches and have a lot of rhetoric. But as far as I know, None of them actually sit down and try to educate the public, mm-hmm. um, partially because they might actually not even know because the the you get elected is not by knowing society or by you know, understanding social psychology. But yeah. what I would love to have happen is if a politician actually was a social scientist or was a political scientist and actually stood up and said, let me explain what's happening here, people. But it's not exciting. Talk, it's not dramatic. So would people even listen? Yeah, well, I find it exciting. I find it dramatic. <laughs> uh, but it's not it's it's not like a boxing match, right? Right. Which is which is what I think a lot of people respond to. You know, they uh, they elect, you know, people on the left are like, Nancy Pelosi, let Trump have it, you know, and people on the left are, or the right are like Trump, let the liberals have it, you know, punch them out. And, th- and that's the attitude. Because, again, I think it's tr- the tradition of politics in our country mm-hmm. and the, just the way we see it. But also, uh, again, we're all hurt and, you know, we just don't have a better way of dealing with it. But, but yeah, I, I've often thought, like, I, 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 I've, when Obama, um, uh, you know, became a former president, one of the things that he was talking about was um, – having his own Netflix show or something. Yeah, I heard that. And I thought, and I'm sure it's not going to happen, but I was like, can you imagine if we just had like one hour a week with Obama and a bunch of scientists explaining things to the American people? Yeah. How, and in a rational, nonpartisan way, like, let's look at the wall. It feels like you know? utopia. Like it will never happen. Yeah. And there'll be graphs and there'll be interviews and there'll be, but you know, that's not how politicians work. Like, like I've often fantasized instead of having a debate, which I find to be a complete, it's sort of like when you're interviewed for a job, like you're being interviewed to be an engineer, let's say, or in, or interviewed to be a therapist for that matter. What the hell does an interview have to do with the actual action of work that job? Right. Now, if you're interviewing to be a public speaker, then by all means do a, uh, a, a 
a debate. But politicians are decision makers. They're legislatures. They're deal makers. So, and they're also like rational thinkers. Supposed to be, they're supposed to think rationally about our future as as a country. So, what I would want not as a debate, but I would want each of the candidates have um, corresponding videos that they would make, yeah. and they would they and they would respond to each other. So, one candidate would put out like a hour long, <clears throat> an hour long little uh, video about whatever they wanted to talk about. And they could they could interview scientists. They could interview people on the street. They could take polls and present those those data. And then the next candidate could come out and respond to that, you know. And and then the public could kind of figure out, you know, who's coming from the right place. And whereas these debates, it's all about like who won the debate, right? It's who like came, a boxing who, match, right? Who came across as <clears throat> As looking the coolest, you know, mm-hmm. who came across as like the most charismatic, which I find to be like one of the most antiquated ways of electing someone to a public office. <laughs> you know, it's when they're behind closed doors, they're not in debate. They're they're making choices. They're gathering information. Like to me, the the bet we're totally off topic now. But to me, that the best candidate for presidency should not be someone who knows answers, but knows how to get answers. Yeah. So, so you know, a di- like, like I guess a hybrid of this would be like, the moderator asks the presidential candidates, um, "What should we do about climate change?" And then each of them waves over five experts, <laughs> and 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 then this, you know, and and then they have a co- little conference with their five experts, and then one of the experts actually steps up to the microphone and says, "Da da 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 da." Right. Um, because what's the chance that one person knows everything about climate change, knows everything about energy politics, knows everything about war, knows everything about foreign policy, knows everything about domestic policy and taxes and tariffs and trade agreements. Like one person does not know all those things. It's not possible. But somehow we think our president is supposed to know everything about everything. At a moment's notice, they're supposed to be able to recall things like off the top of their head. Right. And, <clears throat> You know, it creates this um, this scenario where essentially we elect the most narcissistic human being on the planet who thinks <laughs> they know everything about everything, you know, and, and that's just not a good recipe. Well, you and I are about in the same age range. Do you think in our lifetime we're ever going to see a third party, like an actual legitimate chance of a third party? Are we going to be able it's to get away from this divisiveness and, and have a bigger open election? I don't know. Uh, the history shows that uh, there have been times when a third party has played a major role in in presidential elections. You know, we're focusing on presidential elections, but there's plenty of Democrat, non-Republicans who run for other offices. Oh, sure. You know, lots, sure. You know there's independents and socialists and and. I think we might even have a communist or two in office um, at state level. Anyway, um, so it's uh, but when it comes to the the major players, yeah, I mean, it appears that um, third party is is very unlikely for a number of reasons. One is, is that people aren't used to third parties, you know, <laughs> uh, and so that's hard. Um, the other thing is, is that the Democrats and the Republican parties 
are so powerful and have so much money, they if you know they have a hard enough time fighting each other. Right. But it, but if they both gang up on another, you know, especially if a third party actually started gaining prominence, um, I would I would assume they would they would completely obliterate any other party. Having said that, no weirder things happen. I didn't think Trump was going to elect. I don't. No one thought Trump was going to get elected, and or very few people did. And I don't even think Trump thought he was going to get elected. Yeah, I don't and, think he did either. So you know, weirder things have happened. But yeah, I mean, history like uh, Ross Perot mm-hmm. gave a good, you know, had a good run there. And then with um, uh, Bernie Sanders, had a good run there. We'll see but, what happens with Howard Schultz. Yeah, uh, initial tea leaves say he is not going to do so well. <laughs> yeah, um, a lot of pe- a lot of people apparently hate him. Uh, so yeah, I don't know. We'll see. yeah, this next presidential election is going to get real weird. I think, uh, it's already looking kind of weird. Well, it's already started and it's not even till next year. I'm exhausted already. Totally. Yeah. <laughs> uh, but it, it's interesting to think about, you know, who, because in the past, when you have an incumbent president, you're just like, well, you know, we'll give it our best shot, but it's not likely to work. Uh, when John Kerry, ran against uh, George W. This mm-hmm. kind of thing. It, it's like, well, you know, what's the chance? It's, it's probably not going to work. I mean, I guess Bill Clinton beat H.W. You know, But it's only happened a couple times in the last, I think, 30 or 40 years that someone hasn't had an eight-year presidency. So we'll see. Right. Uh, right. So, so, but a lot of indications are pointing towards the Democrats having a good chance of actually breaking that pattern, you know? And so it, it is, it's just kind of an interesting situation. And the landscape just seems so wide open because, mm-hmm. you know, you have some people who are like, who are like, um, well, let's, let's get another person of color in there. You know, let's, let's get another woman in there. And then other people are like, no, 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 we got to go back to our basics. You know, let's get, let's get Joe Biden in there. You know, this, total old let's get another old white guy because that will be more sure you know that'll be right likely to get elected yeah Um, cory booker just announced he was running or beto or work you know Mm -hmm. Uh, these people you know get it get a tall white guy in there and so it's just it's a totally it'll be really interesting to see who ends up uh you know being nominated for for the election and i think it'll be interesting to see it's definitely the most diverse cast of democratic nominees is it so far i mean it certainly seems so far yeah yeah so So, yeah well thank you so very much for our our two-day talk (laughs) i didn't mean to take up two full hours of your time but i appreciate it i think it's been really helpful and uh maybe when i come up with another titillating topic we can reassess our our next meeting all right well thanks hallie for uh this interesting conversation yes thank you and can i just say it for the first time ever with you yeah take care of yourself because you deserve it you really really do all right that is my interview with dr Kirkonda. special thanks again to him for taking all that time I know we went a little long, a little off topic, but I didn't want to stop it because I felt like it was really relevant to everything we talk about here 
which is just a reminder to have some grace, have some empathy, try not to hurt people's feelings, and don't be a dick. (laughs) If you have any thoughts about this uh, podcast, this episode, please give us an email at contact at willallbedeadpodcast.com. You can find us on Twitter at SomedayDeadPC and on Facebook at slash SomedayWillAllBeDead. So please, like Kirk says on his episode, take care of yourself because you deserve it.